My name is Seamus Hughes. I'm the Deputy Director of George Washington University's Program on Extremism. Extremely is a podcast for anyone who wants to understand and interrupt modern hate and extremism. Hosted by Oren Siegel and brought to you by ADL and American University. These conversations feature expert analysis and fresh perspectives on this global threat and what it might take to stop it in its tracks. The Pacer Whisperer. Yeah. So strikes fear in the hearts of men. Right? It's a it's a good nickname. <laughs> well, I feel like you've embraced it to some degree, right? I, now you're training everybody to how to be, you know, mini uh, yeah. pacer whispers. Yeah. But can you can you talk a bit about how it's helped you elevate important issues, um, not only sort of publicly, but even you know for for other academics, practitioners, and law enforcement. So um, Pacer is basically the online um, court repository for federal court records. Um, it is a mess of a website. It looks like it's from the 1990s. It's very hard to, to traverse. And so when we started the program Extremism, you know, we had I had a law enforcement or intelligence background. I had my friends in the FBI and, and DOJ. And of course, I would reach out to sources there. Um, but at the end of the day, um, documents are, are kind of the bread and butter for an investigator, right? And it, it gives you leads. And so we went through all of the court records to find more international terrorism cases. And what we found was um, sometimes DOJ wouldn't make the announcements when they made arrest. Uh, maybe it was a drug case, but it was really an ISIS case. Maybe the guy cooperated and they didn't want that to see the light of day. Maybe he got a lesser sentence than, than they wanted. And so we got frustrated, frankly, um, that as researchers, we couldn't get good data. And so we systematically went through every single court record in the U.S. and have a PACER bill that um, could run a coup in a small country and because it costs every time you search for some mm-hmm. reason. Um, and we kept finding more and more cases. And so as a result of that, uh, we also found cases that had nothing to do with terrorism. So public corruption, um, bribery, things like that. And so we've taken a, a tact of, you know, this is the public's information. They're, the public's allowed to have access to it. And so we do our best to train journalists and the public on how to use PACER to find um, court records. So it's pretty incredible, right? You, you and your team are looking to get as much information as possible about extremism. You have this treasure treasure trove of other information that you know is relevant that maybe people are not seeing because they're not in that space that you're in. You're doing more than that maybe you weren't expecting. I had no idea I would do this. Um, (laughs) To be honest with you, I just thought I'd I'd tweet it out on on Twitter and then just be be done with it. And it... um, it's snowballed into something different. So we've trained uh, something north of 1,500 journalists in the last year or so on how to use Pacer, um, you know, all the majors and things like that. Um, and it's actually been really useful for us as researchers because you know I can train a journalist on how to use Pacer, and in exchange they can train me on how to use open source collection to do um, to do big data, to do uh, FOIAs, things like that. And so it's been an exchange of information, and, and it's been very useful. We never expected that um, it would be kind of a side. Um, gig for us. It's incredible that, you know, um, the study of extremism um, leads to insight into how we communicate here in this country, even through court records. And I think that's sort of representative of the issues in tracking extremism. Yeah. Like in order to do this job well, you need to be able to do uh, and understand the way communication technology is used, whether it's like some fringe platform or whether it's just basic court records. Yeah. And I think that would be surprising to people that this is not all just easily available. 
No, it's it's absolutely not. Um, is so, that by design? Yeah. Well, for Pacer, uh, they would argue no. I would argue absolutely. Um, it's it's purposely hard to get. A lot of this information is just sitting there, um, but it just hasn't put been put together in a coherent way. The ideal world: someone comes to you in a parking lot and gives you a case file, and you say, "Okay, I understand this extremism thing, right?" Um, you know, I think back to when I was a congressional staffer. Um, I used to do investigations into um, public corruption uh, for about five years, and I had a, a mentor there who spent 25 years at the Washington Post and the Miami Herald, Pulitzer Prize winning reporter. And at one point, he pulled me aside and said, um, this is an important story, but you should know it's a one-day story for you, and it's a lifetime for the target of your investigation. Um, and that could be true of a random court record you find, but it also could be true for the FBI who's spent two and a half years and has you know 20 guys, men and women, looking at this information, and then you decide to just send it out on a quick hit. Um, that's a good day for you, but it's not necessarily a good day in general. Um, Sounds like Twitter. Right, exactly. Um, there's a lesson to never tweeting, I think, uh, is, <laughs> is the takeaway for all of this stuff, right? Um but you need to realize that. And to be fair, it, it took me a while to get there. Um, you always want to be the first one, but sometimes you don't, you shouldn't be. Can you talk a little bit just so people understand the type of information that is available, the uh, Christopher Hassan case and, you know, what you found, what it said and the way that it was, uh, you know, responded to. Yeah, I was actually trying to figure that out this morning um, with one of my students. We were talking about media coverage of, of terrorism. Um, so Christopher Hassan was a Coast Guard employee um, who was under investigation by um, the FBI Baltimore office and was um, ultimately arrested and charged by the Department of Justice, right? Um, it was a snow day. My kids were playing out in the front yard, building snowmen, and um, because I don't have hobbies, I was just seeing what was going on in Pacer, and I probably should have been a better father. Um, <laughs> and I saw that there was a new filing for a guy named Christopher Hassan, and I usually check all the Maryland filings because that's what I do. Um and the first line said, Christopher Hassan's domestic terrorist. I said, oh, that's interesting. Um, and I knew it was a public record, so I tweeted it out um, and did a few series of, of tweets on that. And it, you know, by the time my kids were done building a snowman, we had you know, 10, 20,000 retweets um, from the who's who of, of media and, and it ran on the nightly news. And I thought to myself, um, it's an interesting case, but it's not particularly interesting. Uh, you know, it's interesting that he had hit list, a media hit list. It's interesting that he was a Coast Guard employee. Uh, but to be fair... If well, you look- but it, he also, you know, was buying steroids right. because Anders Brevik yep. in his manifesto right. had suggested that. I mean, it was somebody who was clearly steeped in this yeah. broader culture. But I'm trying to figure out what, what made it break through the noise for the day mm. uh, in a way that, you know, today a, a leader of Adam Waffen gets arrested and it probably will be, you know, paid... Sp- B7, the Washington Post, right? Is it because it's military? Yep. And it's the guy next door that yep. freaks people out. I, I think it's absolutely that. And to be fair, I think I'm a little cynical. I think the fact that he had a media hit list uh, made the media uh, sit up and take notice in a way they hadn't before. Uh, you know, it's, it's different when they're targeting somebody down the street and as opposed to targeting yourself. And so... Um, I think you just hit it on the head. Well, I mean, the, the other thing is rollout, right? So if the Washington Post had had the story, um, the New York Times wouldn't have covered it because the Washington Post had it or the AP or things like that. And it's novel and quirky that no one else had it. And we just sent it out as a random kind of extremism researcher. And so now everyone can run with it because it's nobody's scoop, right? Uh, interesting. It's a very interesting media landscape. Initially, and I know some of your background is looking at more of the 
foreign terrorist organizations. Mm -hmm. Obviously, a lot of the public discussion today, finally, after many years, is really focusing on the domestic extremist threat. Do you think that it's just that people aren't aware that government wasn't taking it as seriously or that there is legitimately something new and different that we're seeing in terms of far right extremism growing in this country? Yeah, that's actually a great debate I've had with myself. Is it confirmation bias, right? So um, are we caring about domestic terrorism? And as, as such, do we see all the arrests every day? But the arrests have been happening for the last 10 years. Uh, I think there's some truth to that. Um, but I think if you look at the landscape, um, it's a lot more scattered than it used to be in, in many ways. You've got the kind of international domestic terrorism groups, for lack of a better word, who have influence here. Um, they've always had links in terms of you know traveling to rock concerts and things like that. But with the rise of the internet, it allows for a level of connectivity you haven't seen before. And you've got both the lone actors of, or folks that are kind of inspired by the ideology and act, but a really interesting dynamic in the domestic terrorism space is there's a network in a way that you haven't seen for ISIS or Al-Qaeda cases. So I'll give you an example. You know, you, you it would be hard to find a case of 12 gentlemen in Georgia training to join ISIS um, and shooting guns in, in a 100-acre plot of land. It would not be particularly hard, as we saw from an arrest um, a couple weeks ago, of the base. Uh, and so you see these clusters of individuals. And some of that is a reflection of um, law enforcement resources, understandably focused on on jihadists or foreign terrorist organizations post 9-11. Um, but some of that also is a reflection of uh, the tools being less in the, in the toolkit. So if you've got material support to terrorism for foreign terrorists, right, it's a very expansive law and allows you to kind of interject yourself in very early on. You don't have that same dynamic for domestic terrorists. And so these guys can hand out leaflets at Times Square and talk about how great white supremacy is, whereas, you know, you didn't see that for the caliphate for ISIS guys. Um, and so right. it's a and yet, animal. And yet in the beginning, right after 9-11, I felt like there were, you know, the Lackawanna Six, mm-hmm. the Virginia Jihad group. Yep. There was the, was it Seattle or Washington? Yep. And even in Florida, you had these like groups of guys, some of them. We're either doing like paintball training yeah. or whatever. So there was something a little bit more Absolutely. like what we're seeing now with white supremacy. Right. Uh, and I think law enforcement um, got smart about it. Um, they understood that, you know, not allowing a cluster to develop is, is probably a good thing. And so they're interjecting themselves earlier in the process than they did before. Um, and, and to be fair, I think a lot of the, the would-be jihadists are understanding that if they are hanging out with six other guys shooting paint guns in Virginia, that's going to raise a law enforcement concern in a way that I don't think the domestic terrorist guys fully understand yet. Do you feel like we're just a couple of years away where, you know, someone sprinkles in a little ISIS ideology, a little sovereign citizen, yep. a little white supremacy, and really creates their own because they're able to access all of these places, often on the same platform, right. and just get radicalized not by a consistent narrative, but one that merely glorifies violence and speaks to them for some reason. Absolutely. I think we're getting to a point of a cocktail of ideologies. Um, And in fact, I think the U.S. government's recognizing that too. Department of Homeland Security came out with a strategy on countering violent extremism, and the second part of the strategy was targeted violence. And that was violence that um, is just committed in order to to, um, for mass violence. So you're going to have individuals who just want to hurt people for the sake of hurting people, and um, then the ideology will match up later. and so, yeah, I think we're absolutely going to get there. You're going to choose your own adventure for, for this, unfortunately. Right. You don't know if someone's from the Ukraine yeah. or from Brazil. And that's probably as empowering 
as actually meeting somebody in your neighborhood when you think you're part of like a global movement of some sort. Yeah, yeah, it's much easier when it's an on, on the ground cluster. Now, my FBI friends would disagree with my assessment on that, but um, there is something to be said about that. The problem, I think, um, when you look at kind of far right extremists or even domestic terrorism in general, um, is there's a lot more noise in, in as opposed to it. So when you're looking at jihadist cases, like you can say like you know 50% of them you should be concerned about, the other 50% are just talkers. It's a lot more talkers in the domestic terrorism world. Uh, and so it's hard to figure out who's going to be the one um, you should be concerned about. And the other thing um, to, to think about on this is that you, you've got kind of a transition between many different platforms that are that are concerning, but also that there's a there's an echo chamber that's developing online, that you're not going to hear dissenting voices, um, that these guys are getting kicked out. Um, you're not going to see the U.S. government run a counter-messaging campaign against white supremacy. I mm-hmm. would love to see it, but you're not going to. Because they've had so much success doing right. international terrorism. If, if, you know, if, if it was a hornet's nest walking into international terrorism, it's, it's even more so when you talk about domestic politics. Uh, and so they're just not going to do it. Um, so it's going to be incumbent on civil society to play some sort of role. And, and, and you know, one of the points that you were just making is when there is... There's a corporate approach, right? These platforms say we're going to try to minimize this in some way, and maybe they purge, you know, white supremacists yeah. or others from their platform. The point is, they're going to find a million other places to migrate to. Yeah. And, and does and do you? So the question is, do you think that that actually creates a more concentrated echo chamber, where, as you noted, there's no sort of alternative narrative? Yep. So my gut says that the radicalization pool shrinks. And so you're less likely to get them merely curious. And, and so that's a good thing yeah. as they move to smaller platforms. But the mobilization pool gets stronger. So the guys that are about to act uh, are more likely to act because they're only surrounded by people who think about acting. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's a real concern. Uh, I mean, listen, ADL's done some groundbreaking work on this, new, new decades of work uh, on tracking the platforms. It's... I, I have the easy job because most of my work is looking at ISIS, and um, and I can understand the ideology of Al Qaeda, ISIS, Al Shabaab, Boko Haram. There's a little bit of variance here and there. Um, the ideology of some domestic terrorism groups, uh, while similar in having some um, connective tissue, it does veer off very quickly into conspiracies, into voluntary and celibacy. All everything kind of mixes together in a cocktail. And so, if you're a tech company trying to prevent this, um, I can tell you what the 60 logos are for foreign terrorist organizations. Take them down. Uh, it's a little bit harder when you're talking about domestic terrorist groups, which you know change names every every five seconds. You have new leadership who uh, are very incestuous in how they do things, like the base and Adamoff and trade members back and forth. And so, it's not as clear cut as as it would for the stuff that I traditionally look at, which is ISIS. And and you know one of the cases that you did a lot of work on was uh, this case of Zachary Chesser, who in many ways kind of reminds me of what we're seeing today. Because you were mentioning how some of the language today is, you know, changing constantly. And in fact, they're using, you know, pop culture references, irony and yeah. humor in the memes. And yet Zachary Chester, even though this is what, eight, nine years ago, yeah. approximately, you know, was an individual who also seemed to understand the importance of pop culture. Um, so Zach Chester was a, a kid from Virginia, um, 20 something kid interested in al-shabaab uh was reaching out to a guy named anwar Laki, who's a pretty prominent was a pretty prominent um ideologue and had his own website um part of a group called revolution muslim uh which is about a dozen or so folks that were uh, running a, a pro al-qaeda websites uh chester was the original troll for 
ISIS and Al Qaeda and Al Shabaab back in the day. He liked um, putting out provocative stuff. You know, he had, he threatened the South Park creators. He liked the news on that, and he knew how to um, take the fifty-page diatribe that you know Saeed Qutb put out and put it into something that's um, the original 140 characters of, hmm. of Twitter. Um, in so many ways, he's groundbreaking on that. He got arrested because um, he took his um, infant son to the airport with the plan to go on, on a plane and go join Al-Shabaab. He thought if he took his, his son, the cops wouldn't arrest him, and he was mistaken in that. Um, and ended up having um, getting sentenced to 25 years, now in Supermax. Um, I've traded letters with him a number of times. Really interesting guy. Um, uh, has, he, has he expressed any remorse no, or change? No. no. Um, if anything, he's hardened his beliefs. Um, He's moved back and forth between prisons. It hasn't particularly gotten um, along with a lot of folks and uh, did not believe that his other cellmates were were not were fervent enough in their beliefs. Um, and so um, he's had a number of run ins um, with prison officials. I was struck at the time, you know, because we had been investigating some of that as well, you know, just in our tracking of Revolution Muslim at the time that his radicalization process mm-hmm seemed pretty fast yeah right from a guy who's like clean cut um and the crew team at at, at yeah. you know uh, george mason yeah. to a guy with a heavy beard you know in front of protests talking about his appreciation essentially for al-qaeda and that was back then and so now where we're in a culture of you know participatory social media that gives you a whole different ways to engage i i feel like i see people um radicalizing even faster even if they're not necessarily going to go out and carry an attack yeah i think that's absolutely right uh i mean Ch- chester was the original kind of internet radicalization case in the u.s uh somebody who was all in the online environment but that was an online environment that wasn't particularly interactive by nature you know you had a forum you post a comment someone responds to the comment that's a different animal now uh where um, you're getting real-time information especially for the isis cases where if you wanted to reach out to a a rock star kind of ISIS recruiter in Syria, like he's on Twitter, just ask, just send him, hmm. slide into his DMs and ask him a question. Right? <laughs> it's not that, not that hard. Um, it reminds me a little bit of you know, think back to Adam Gadans of the world. You know, this um, California guy who was uh, third in command of Al Qaeda and was their chief kind of propagandist. Right? He used to put out like these fifty-minute-long videos about how you know great Al Qaeda was and how you should use the gun show loophole and shoot up a mall. Right. Nobody ever took him up on the offer um, because it was a it was a megaphone, and these guys are using um, much more of a whisper campaign. It's it's a one on one interaction. It's a similar to kind of how our politics are going. There's a polarization in here and a reinforcement of their beliefs um, in a way that you hadn't seen before. It, it strikes me that people used to be very maybe shocked when you have these American faces that were acting as, you know, spokespeople, whether it was for Al-Shabaab and Omar Hamami, or you mentioned Adam Gadan, or, you know, even Awaki or Samir Khan. And there was the shock, like, oh, these are Americans who are part of this, you know, Al-Qaeda propaganda system. Today, with white supremacists, I think people are getting shocked and surprised that people around the world are using this very American sort of extremist narrative. We exported our hate uh, around the world. Yeah. yeah. And listen, Americans have always punched above their weight when it came to <laughs> joining foreign terrorist organizations. Um, we've got a relatively small population of folks who've joined foreign terrorist organizations in the U.S., and that's a testament to a number of different um, aspects. Uh, but the ones who do join tend to rise to the ranks 
um, sometimes because they have the skills and, and ability, but also really because they like the shock factor of, uh, of it. Why do you even do this? Like, why is extremism and hatred and violence something like was baby Seamus like always into this? Or is this no. something that grew? Like, how does that even happen? No, I used to be much cooler. Uh, <laughs> no, what, really how I got into the business uh, of looking at extremism was um, the in 2006 when I was a, a lowly staffer in the in the U.S. Senate, um, the individual who was doing homegrown terrorism took a new job and there was about six or seven cases a year the average age was 22 of the people who got arrested the staff director looked at me and said you're 22 and this isn't a big issue you can't ruin it go run with it right and then so unfortunately the threat raised rose as as that so we had fort hood and a bunch of other things so it's and, your fault okay yes absolutely there's a trajectory and is correlation if not causation right um how do you cope with the reality of what you are choosing to do every single day <laughs> It's been hard. You know, we try not to – you tell yourself when you're doing this, like, well, I'm not an FBI agent. Uh, my life is not threatened on a daily basis, just a weekly one, right? Um, and, you know, I'm just a guy who sits in an air-conditioned office in D.C. and looks at extremism stuff, and, you know, I'm not living in a war zone, right? And so you try to tell yourself, you know, pep up, um, sit straight, and don't worry about this. Um, but – you watch enough beheading videos and, and it gets to you. Um, and sometimes the violence doesn't get to you um, as much as the, uh, for lack of a better, the innocuous stuff, right? So mm. there was an ISIS video of um, of a young um, boy who was actually an, an American boy um, learning how to shoot sniper rifles in ISIS. Um, and he looked like my son. And so... I've got three kids at home and it got to me in a way that I don't know how to describe. Um, and that was when I put down my phone for the day and, and took a walk. Um, you asked kind of how I got into Pacer and some of that was doing extremism stuff. And then some of that was just doing a mental floss. So it is helpful for me to look at public corruption cases on federal court records because there's no <laughs> threats of violence. There's nothing. It's just a puzzle. I can look at it. I can find something and I can move on. And so it just clears my mind in a way that, that I haven't do it. What I do when I get home, you know, my phone goes in, in a drawer for a couple hours. I hang out with my kids and my wife and we have dinner and we enjoy ourselves and I can turn on after that when everybody goes to bed. Um, but for those three or four hours, like, I got to be there because um, if I'm not there, my mind goes elsewhere. But you are turning it on after everyone goes to yeah, bed. Yeah, I, I have a uh, an inability to turn it off um, and I'm waiting for my hair to fall out. But um, it, yeah, it, it's a passion. Um, I wish I had better passions. I wish I learned how to play guitar or something fun like that. Um, but I like puzzles and these are puzzles. And sometimes it's annoying that there's no answer to the puzzle. Um so you look at a case and you're like, why did that guy do what he did? Like, what's going on? And you just, you can't figure it out. And sometimes some people would just like to watch the world burn. You've got to accept that as an answer, but um, it's frustrating. You know, I, I try to get um, some solace from the work that we deal with by going to Nick games. Yeah. And I will tell you that the idea of going to a Nick game yeah. to avoid, you know, suffering and pain <laughs> is not something that's been working very well. But I, I do think it is important to find those moments. Yeah. It takes a toll. You've done quite a number of media um, interviews in um, recent years, right? And so, you know, that happens on a Saturday at 8 o'clock, and your kids have a baseball game that that 
that same time. And you've got to balance whether, you know, it's important to talk to the public about the threat, but it's also important to watch your kid hit a ball, right? Uh, and, and it's difficult balancing act. I've, I've been fortunate that um, my wife is very understanding, much more understanding than I would be. And actually, I think you're probably really good at what you do because you do make some time. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Um, I was fortunate um, when I started my career working for um, Joe Lieberman from Connecticut, um, and he always took off for Shabbat, right? And so from Friday night to Saturday night, um, we all had a break, and that was okay. And then, you know, you knew Saturday at, at when the sun went down, it was time to respond to emails. But there is something you said about unplugging every once in a while, and, and everything is not a crisis, Um although it may feel like that at the moment. What can you tell like a listener for this conversation or, or conversations like this who is interested in this topic, you know, is not running the GW program on extremism, doesn't have a Pacer account, can't afford that, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, wants to be part of the solution, cares enough about this, recognizes the atmosphere that we're in today. What is like one thing that they can do to be part of the, the pushback against this? Yeah, I think there's a lot of different options, um, depending on how involved you want it to be. I mean, ADL has offices around the country. They do outreach on, on, on this um, a number of times. So reach out to your local ADL office and say, I want to help and what do you need? Um, there's something we said about interfaith um, uh, activities. Um, getting to know your neighbors is, is a very important thing. Uh, you're less likely to hate somebody if you know that their kid plays t-ball, right? Uh, and you can see them as a, as a different um, person. There's the cliche of see something, say something, which is important. Um, but um, you also need to take a step back and realize, yes, we've had an unprecedented number of attacks, um, both from jihadists and domestic terrorists in the recent years. Um, but the numbers are relatively small. And so you don't need to be worried that somebody's hiding in your bed trying to kill you. There's a weird balancing act. you got to live your life, um, but you also have to be aware of what's going on. So if people want more information on GW, the work that you and your team does, where can they go? Where can they learn more? Yep. So we have a website, um, extremism.gw.edu. We also have a Twitter account, GWUPOE. And then my Twitter accounts, my name, Seamus Hughes, S-E-A-M-U-S, Hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S. We aim to be a resource for the public and policymakers. So um, if you have a question, ask. Shoot us an email. We'll answer it and we'll try to get the information out. Um, if there's a particular part of extremism you want to understand, you know, we we purposely set this place up to be accessible. Um, so so reach out anytime. Hopefully there'll be more days where you're able to shut off your phone. But I really appreciate you making the time. Thank you for having me. Well, MBA, I, mean, I grew up in Reggie Miller, so. All right, that's not fair. Yeah. We're not talking about that. <laughs>
Q strives to connect academic expertise with the public on areas of pressing import. This podcast is a project of the Center's Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, Peril. To learn more, visit American.edu backslash P-E-R-I-L.